So, you know, years ago when I answered the calling to become a pastor, I immediately had all these visions in my mind of what the day in a pastor was going to look like. And at the time, I was working as a service manager at an at a automobile dealer, and my job was to get yelled at. You know, I was the, the whipping post all day long. And so I said, going into ministry, this is going to be awesome. I'm just going to be able to, like, read my Bible and pray all day and just, you know, I'm still, we've been in ministry for well over 10 years now, and, and I'm still waiting for that day to happen. I just settled for a day that is like that at this point. But hey, anyway, welcome, guys. We are, like Gabe said, regardless of how your day started, regardless of what's going on, we are blessed to be able to be here and just share a word, a word that I think God put on my heart. I am so excited to share this word. I've been so excited all the way through this series because as I study the word to be able to relay it to you, um, God is just showing me new things every day. I told the guys last night um, that as I was driving over here, okay, messages prepped, it's all, everything's good to go. And as I'm driving over here, God's sending me downloads of things that he wants me to know about this. I'm like, stop, my head is full, I can't, I can't do anymore. And so my job now is to take this massive download that God gave me of all this information and just pare it down into something that uh, will get you home before it starts to rain at 4 o'clock this afternoon. So, Jessica, I won't keep you anywhere near that long. 2, two o'clock tops. So, anyway, you laugh, but it could happen. Anyway, so well, so welcome again, guys. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Hey, if you if, if this is your first time, or maybe you've been a couple times, or you haven't been in a while, um, I want to kind of take a second and catch you up on where we are and what we're talking about. So uh, we're talking about Stations of the Cross, okay? And you may have heard about Stations of the Cross in all kinds of different contexts, especially if you have like a denominational background. It's something that they typically do around Easter, or sometimes they just do it on Easter. Uh, if you have a Catholic background, or there are certain places where they actually have stations set up all the time, and it's a common part. But a lot of people don't really understand what the Stations of the Cross are, what they're about, where they came from, the origin, all this kind of stuff. And so that's what we're teaching on. But I want to explain a couple things. Number one, Stations of the Cross, what they literally are, are places, stations, places, where something significant happened to Jesus on his walk from the place where he was judged by Pontius Pilate to Golgotha, where he was ultimately crucified. Okay, so that's an actual pathway. It's a series of alleyways, actually, in Jerusalem where Jesus walked. And they call that, it's called the Via Dolorosa, which means literally the way of sorrows or the sorrowful way. Um, And so that is an actual place in Jerusalem. You can actually go there today. A little shout out. So a year from now, we're hoping to be able to have a trip from our church, from Discover Community, where we go together to Jerusalem. So if that's something that's ever been on your bucket list, watch for that. We're trying to organize that for next year. But anyway, when you go there to Jerusalem, you can actually see stations listed. There's a little commemorative plaque saying this is station one. Now, the cool thing about Jerusalem is, is those stations, they're actually in the place where these things happened. So when, when Scripture talks about this event happening, and it's commemorated by a station. Okay, the stations weren't there thousands of years ago. There's something modern that's been put in that place, but it's approximately in the place where that actual event occurred. 
So you can go there and you can literally walk the Via Dolorosa and you can see these commemorative plaques saying, hey, here's station two, here's three, here's four. And at this place, this is what has happened. Okay, so depending on the, the um, tradition that you follow, there are anywhere from eight stations to up to, I've seen 14 stations, okay, that are listed. Now, a station, again, is just where something significant happened. Some of them are listed in Scripture, and in fact, in Scripture, there's eight of them that are explicitly listed in Scripture, and it talks about this happened at this place. The others are either inferred from historical accounts or from other sources, doesn't make them wrong, it just means that they're not in Scripture. So what we're going to do, given that I'm an expository preacher and God gave me the Word and he said, I want you to focus on the Word, we are going to talk about and we are going to teach on the eight stations that are explicitly listed. So again, depending on the tradition that you're used to, you may not have heard some of the stations that you've heard of. And again, that's just because they're not explicitly listed in Scripture. And so that's, that's what we're focusing on. If you missed any of the other weeks, so we're on week seven right now. Easter's in two weeks, April 1st. So mark your calendars for that because we want you to be here for Easter on April 1st. Um, but if you missed any of those, you can go back. You can go on our website, okay, discovercommunity.church, or you can podcast through iTunes or through Google Play and catch up. I think it's important that you catch up because on Good Friday, which is, which is the Friday directly before Easter weekend, okay, we're going to have an actual Good Friday event here. Now, it's not, a, it's not a service, so there's no worship, there's no teaching. It's kind of an interactive experience, but we are going to have representations of the stations and so I would love for you to be able to not only be here and, and experience that, but to understand the significance as you're going around. So if you want to go back and catch up on those, you can. So that's a little background on the eight stations, what we're doing. So to give you a quick recap on what they are, station number one is, is uh, where Mark, where Mark, it's in Mark 1515, where Pilate actually condemns Jesus to die. Okay, Jesus is judged. Station number two is Jesus accepts his cross. He literally takes that cross on his back and begins the trek to Golgotha. Station three is Simon helps carry the cross. This is where Jesus actually collapses under the weight of the cross and blood loss and pain, and he can't carry it. So Simon, just a random seemingly passerby, is pressed into service to help him carry that. Station four, Jesus speaks to, they're called the daughters of Jerusalem, but these, these mourners who are standing by watching Jesus go speaks to them. Station six, Jesus is nailed, uh, station five, that is, Jesus is stripped of his garments. Pastor Jonathan taught about that, okay, they, where they actually take his clothes and he is literally nailed naked to the cross. Uh, station six, Jesus is nailed to the cross, and then this week. Brings us to this week. This is station number seven of the eight that we're going to talk about. And this is just titled, Jesus Cares for His Mother. Okay? The scripture that we're going to use is John 19, 25 to 27. We put that up there. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Okay, that's the scripture that we're going to be talking about. That happens to be out of the NASB, the New American Standard 
Bible. This is one that I like to teach out of. Um, I would recommend, regardless of the translation that you use, go back and read John 19. John 19, it's, it's not a long chapter, but it's a very, very good account of what's going on. So let's show that picture. This is not entirely historically accurate, okay? Um, but it's by Leonardo da Vinci, and I think it captures some of the emotion of what's going on. Okay, I'll move around so I'm not standing directly in the way. It captures some of the emotion. You've got down here in the corner, you've got the Roman soldiers who are just playing games and they're just kind of, they're just killing time because it's just their job to hang out there and make sure nobody takes them down. Okay, that's what they're there for. You've got random passerbys who are just kind of sitting there just observing the, observing the scene. Then you've got some mourners over here on the side. Now that's the group that we're going to focus on. This group of mourners who are there specifically for Jesus in this case, but I'm sure there are people there for the, for the other people being crucified as well. But I want to give you a little background to this, uh, not specifically to this, but to the book of John. Okay, the book of John is one of the four gospels. Okay, if you've heard of that, the first four books in the New Testament are called gospels, which essentially just talk about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's, that's specifically what they are about, his death, his resurrection. That's what the Gospels talk about. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are considered synoptic Gospels, if you've ever heard that term. Synoptic just means that they, they are talking about the same events from a similar point of view. Okay, synoptic point of view. So they're talking about those from a similar point of view. They never lump John into the synoptics, okay? Even though it talks about the same, the same events, they don't lump it into there. The reason is, is twofold. Number one is that it was written many years later, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke were all written fairly shortly, okay, within 10, 15, bless you, 10, 15 years of, of Jesus' crucifixion, 20 years, depending on, on the timeline you use, but John was not written until 50 to 70 years after Jesus' crucifixion, okay? So that's one. It was written quite a bit differently about the same events, but from a different perspective, that perspective that sometimes only age can give us in retrospect when we're looking back. Um, the other ones, that the first three Gospels were essentially just written to, to make sure they get the facts down, of what happened before the people who witnessed it passed away or forgot or anything like that. So there's a little bit of a difference in there. But John specifically, okay, John actually wrote, there's five books in the New Testament that John wrote. He wrote, obviously, the Gospel of John. He wrote John 1, 2, 3, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Okay, so that's who John was. He, he, he wrote uh, a considerable chunk of the New Testament. He, John was actually the younger brother of James. James was another one of Jesus' disciples. Okay, so he was the younger brother of James. John and James, okay, the John that wrote this, and James were cousins to Jesus. Okay, so that's kind of the family line. John and James were cousins to Jesus. Now, when it talks about in the scripture here, when um, we're standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, and then it talks about Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. His mother's sister is actually a woman named Salome, and that's who we're talking about. Salome is the mother of John and James, okay? So that's, that's the scene that you're looking at in this picture. When you're looking at, you're going to see Mary, Jesus' mother, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, and you're going to see Salome, in addition to then John. Those are the people who in that picture there were, were sitting at the foot of the cross mourning Jesus, okay? That, so that's where we are. John, by the way, just a fun fact for you, John was the only one of the original apostles that was not killed by martyrdom, meaning he wasn't killed for his beliefs. He was the only one to have died of old age, Okay. Now, not for lack of trying, he was, the Bible actually says, at some point, he was sentenced to death for his beliefs by being dipped in a vat of boiling oil. Now, how he escaped that, it doesn't really document that, and we don't really know, but he was sentenced, and yet it didn't happen. He ended up actually just dying of old age, so um, that's good for him, right? John was only the, the only gospel that actually talks about some of these events, so John actually talks about a lot of the events from, not from a different point of view, but he's emphasizing different aspects of it. And I believe that that's because he's looking back. The first three Gospels were actually already written down, and they were already widely in circulation among the church at that time. Okay, In fact, John pastored a church in Ephesus, okay, which is in modern-day Turkey. He pastored that, and John was actually kind of written as a sermon or as a sermon series. And since he was there and witnessed Jesus' ministry, knew Jesus, he was at the crucifixion. At this point, you can imagine in retrospect, he's looking back and he's saying, okay, we have these three books. What can I add to this? Well, what he can add is he can literally, like we would do, fill in the blanks, right, of things that maybe weren't explained clearly or things that weren't even explained at all, but that were, in retrospect, that were important aspects to it. So he's actually writing this to kind of fill in the blanks. Um, Again, they were very familiar with the first three Gospels, and he didn't want his to, I'm I'm just going to pile on and just say the same exact thing. I'm going to write it from a little different aspect. And so in that way, John is sometimes called the spiritual gospel. Okay, because he does talk about facts. There are plenty of facts and things in there, but he's really looking more for the heart and the spirituality of, of who Jesus was and what this means to us. Okay, so he records things that the other ones don't. Now, the reason that it was written at all is, again, because he's writing this message to his church in Ephesus, in, in Turkey, but they had started to run into some issues in that church. Okay, they've got one of the original apostles right there teaching them, and even then they are starting to sway from what the truth is, from what the good news about Jesus is. And so he's writing this to do that. So number one, he's writing this to to fill in the blanks, to give them some practical application. Okay, in fact, there's a quote, um, it, it's from one of the commentaries that I read that's attributed to one of the, the one of the leaders in John's church back then. He says, We we know Jesus. And we know what he did, but what do we do with this? Okay, so that's what they're even struggling with. We know Jesus. We know what he did. We've all heard the stories. Does this sound familiar to anybody? But what do we do with it? How does this apply to our lives? Okay, and then the second reason that he wrote this is because he had to really combat, and he was fighting and struggling against this growing movement called Gnosticism, spelled G-N-O-S-ticism. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. I know I have the first four letters right. Yeah, look at look it up. That could be an entire message or an entire series talking about what that is. So I don't want to go into too much detail on that, other than to let you know one of their key tenets was that they they believed that Jesus 
was God, that Jesus was deity. But they believed that he was all deity, okay? Meaning that there was no human or no fleshly aspect to him. And that's important. That's one of the things that we would consider uh, a non-negotiable fact. Because if Jesus was not, he was God, but he was also fleshly man when he walked on this earth. And if you deny the aspect of him being human in the flesh, then that really takes the power of the death and resurrection and minimizes it, doesn't it? Because if he was all God and the the people in Turkey and Greece, and they were very familiar with multiple gods, they had no problem with the aspect that, that a god could be killed and come back. Usually they came back with, what, extra heads and all kinds of different things, right? So they had no problem with the concept. It was the concept of a human being giving himself up in the flesh to this kind of pain and this kind of torture and torment and then rising again, triumphing over death. This is what John is trying to fight when he's preaching here. And so with that growing wave of of Gnosticism, that Gnostic movement, that's what he's trying to fight. And so that's another reason why this gospel was written. So um, the application and then to fight that. So when and where it was written, it was written from Ephesus, again, modern-day Turkey. That's where he was when he wrote it. Somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D. is about when he wrote it. So that's, depending on the calendar you use or how you figure your time, 50 to 70 years after Jesus' ministry. Okay? So in other words, John is an old man at this point. John's an old man, and he's looking back in retrospect, and he's, and he's saying, okay, these, these are the things that happened. I see how people have reacted. I see this growing movement of Christ followers, and I need to add something. I need to add my perspective because he was there, and he had a very good perspective. So that's, that's where we are. That's a little background on the book of John and on John himself. So let's start going into each individual verse, okay? Um, John 19, 25. Get that up there. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay, so that's, that's 1925. First of all, <coughs> excuse me, uh, his mother's sister, and that, that is probably Salome. Now, there's some debate about that. If you start researching this on your own, you'll see that there's some debate where there are actually just three women Uh, You know, because we don't know about the punctuation there. Three women, four women, we're not entirely certain. But the tradition that that I've heard most often, and the one that I've studied out and I adhere to, is that there's actually four women. Now, another thing to know about this, and this applies to all scripture that you're looking at, it was written down in typically in letter form or in paragraph or, or in sermon form, right? The breaks, the page breaks that we see, the numbers 19, Verses 25, 27, those are things that were added much later just to help us study. And one of the reasons you know that is because this starts out, therefore the soldiers did these things. But it makes absolutely no sense in the context of that paragraph right there. So that is a transitional sentence from the paragraph before it, from the verse before. So if you're going to read John 19 in its entirety, you'll see that, and it just flows that way. So sometimes you see those things, and it doesn't make a lot of sense when it stands alone. So we have four women, okay, four women at the foot of the cross who are mourning Jesus, three of which are named Mary, 
One is named Salome. Now, here's another thing, just a, just a little side fact. Here's how you know that the Bible is true and authentic and wasn't just written down as somebody's idea of a good story. If you're going to write a story, are you going to have three of your main characters in one scene all named Mary? Probably not, because it gets a little confusing. Even to this day, there's debate on who was who and who did what. So I think, to me, that just leads to the authenticity of it, because who's going who's gonna to make that kind of stuff up? Next one, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is a disciple of Jesus. Now, a lot of people think that Magdalene is like her last name. Okay, Magdalene is not her last name. Magdala is actually a town on the Sea of Galilee. It's on the shore of the Galilee, not, not far down from uh, Tiberias. But that's where she's from. So it's literally Mary of Magdala. We shorten it to just Mary Magdalene. Okay, So that's, that's where she gets her name. Um, the same, by the way, the, those three Marys are the ones who went to the tomb in a few days just to, to see that Jesus was no longer there. It's the same, same group of, of the three ladies. So they're sitting there. And they're watching the crowd. Now, originally, they start out in the back because to be associated with Jesus, who's being crucified, is dangerous. If you associate with Jesus, there's a good chance you're going to find yourself up on one of those crosses as well. Now, technically, they didn't crucify women. But you could be, imp- you could be imprisoned. There could be all kinds of things that could come your way. So they're, in the beginning, they're at the back of the crowd. And they're watching these things happen. But then they slowly start to inch their way forwards, and eventually they end up right at the foot of the cross, where they can see, and they can smell, and they can hear the things that are happening with Jesus. And one of the things that's happening with Jesus is that people are just hurling insults at him. Okay? The crowd of Jews that are around there, they're hurling insults at him. The Roman soldiers are doing it. Even the other criminals who are being crucified. Can you imagine? You're being crucified, the three of you, and the two on either side are hurling insults at you. So this is what Jesus' mother is witnessing. Can you imagine the heartbreak of a mother to not only watch this happen, but at this point of agony where he is just, they're just watching time now, just waiting for him to die. And these people are hurling all these insults at him, throwing things at him. And this is the scene that we're at. So right in the middle of this, right in the middle of that pain and that torment, we go to verse 19, 26. When Jesus then saw his mother, so Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's bleeding. He's in pain. He's dying very slowly. And he looks down, and he sees his mother thereby. When Jesus then saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, sometimes when you read that, you might be tempted to think, Behold your son. He's saying, Woman, look at me. But he's not saying that, actually. The disciple who Jesus loved, first of all, is John, the writer of this gospel. Now, we don't know why he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He never actually, in Scripture, talks, says his name. He just constantly calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I don't know if that was who he was writing to. He didn't want to say his name out of modesty. Or if he wanted to emphasize the close relationship that he had with Jesus. But that's the disciple that Jesus loved. Nearing the end... 
nearing the end in the middle of all this pain, in the very next verse, he gives up his life. He has compassion for his mother. And he has compassion for his friend. And again, so even up until the last moment, Jesus is looking outside of himself with compassion at those that are around him. He sees his mother standing by the cross. Now what this means is a couple things. He knows that in just a few moments, she's going to lose her oldest son. Her son who, who she has been with from birth, she has watched him walk this path. She has seen she has seen the things that he is able to do, and she's about to lose him. Now, she has also lost her husband some time ago, Joseph. Right? We don't know for a fact what happened to Joseph. We don't know when he died, but we do know that he's no longer around. The assumption is that he died. Most men died at a younger age back in, in those times. But really, if you look back in Scripture, the last time Joseph is seen or heard from is when? It's when... They're coming back from Jerusalem. If you remember the story, or if you don't, they take Jesus into Jerusalem, and they're coming back, and Jesus stays behind. He basically gets lost. And they realize halfway home that Jesus is not with them. (laughs) That's actually the last time that we hear from Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes the statement, don't you know I'm about my heavenly father's business? And at that point, his earthly father ceases to be in the picture. We don't hear from him again. So, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is about to lose her oldest son. She's already a widow. And he's having compassion for her. Now, Jesus did have brothers. He had a number of brothers. And he had a number of sisters. Okay, We don't know exactly what the number is, but we know that they had them. But here's what we do know. They didn't believe in Jesus at this point. They didn't believe in Jesus. They did come to accept him later. But not at this point. They actually lived in a place quite a ways away from here called Capernaum. They had businesses. They had lives. They had their own families. They were doing their own thing. And so they weren't here. They weren't a part of this. And Mary had made the decision to follow Jesus in his ministry and to be there with him. So Jesus is looking down, essentially saying, my mother is about to be alone. And he's having compassion for her. Now, his firstborn As firstborn son, Jesus was actually legally responsible for Mary. He was legally responsible for taking care of her needs, making sure that she was set up and had a place to live. Even in death, that was still his responsibility. Didn't let him off the hook. So he had to set up for her her future, for her well-being. So let's go to John 19, 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. So he's looking at John, saying, Behold, your mother. And then it says, From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So, side note, this is where the Catholic Church, the Catholic tradition, gets the idea that Mary is the mother of the church. You've heard of Mother Mary, Saint Mary. This is where they take that as meaning that here Jesus is assigning Mary as the mother, not just to John, but the symbolic mother to the entire church. This is where they take that part from their tradition. I don't believe the scripture reads that way, but that is, that is it's a valid tradition. So um, one other note, you might think if you've been kind of following along on who's who, 
John's mother, Salome, is standing there. John's mother, Salome, is one of the women who's standing there, and yet Jesus is saying, this is now your mom, pointing to Mary. Why wasn't Salome hurt? Or was she hurt? Why, wasn't, why didn't Jesus point to Salome and say, hey, there's your mother? Well, I think there's a couple things, a couple reasons for that, one of which is Salome was incredibly blessed already. Okay, we don't know a lot about her. It talks a little bit about her being one of the disciples of Jesus. And some of the, but we do know her husband was a man named Zebedee. You may have heard of Zebedee in just other contexts and other passages in the Bible. But Zebedee was a very rich businessman there in Jerusalem. Very, very rich. So she had not only a husband, but a very rich husband. She had a home with servants. And she had two boys, at least two boys, John and James, who were some disciples of Jesus, she was a proud mom, and she had a lot going on. She was a blessed woman. But in that context then, Jesus saw his mom, who had none of these things, and so he assigned John to her. Scripture doesn't document this, but I would imagine that Salome was was more than happy to have her son spend time Okay? She's not giving up her physical son. He's still around. But he's going to care for Mary at this point. So not long after this. So Mary lived, Scripture says that Mary lived, uh, and, and history documents that Mary lived with John for about 20 to 30 years. A little bit of time in Jerusalem, and then they moved together. They moved to Ephesus, where they lived uh, for several more years while John was, was doing his ministry. This is something, by the way, that Jewish culture would have very much frowned upon. Okay, a single, doesn't matter the age difference, and this is a mother of a friend, you have a, a, a widow living with a single man. That was very much against Jewish culture. But as we've seen from history, Jesus doesn't care a whole lot about the letter of the law. What he cares about is the heart. And what he says, the two most important laws are love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And so if you're going to follow the letter of the law to the extent that you don't care for your widowed mother or you don't care for your best friend who's just about to lose his friend, then you're not showing love to one another. So I don't think Jesus cared an awful lot about that tradition. Before he breathed his last breath, he gave a mother to his best friend. He gave a mother to his dearest friend and he gave a son to his widowed mother, someone to care for her. So up until the last moment, he was showing compassion. Jesus gave these gifts from the cross to show that he is all about providing healing and restoration of what the enemy has taken away. That's what Jesus came to do, provide healing and restoration of what the enemy has tried to to steal. And right up until the last moment, he's showing how that works. In Psalm 34, 18, I think we have that one up there. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. No matter where you are, we are called to draw closer to the cross. See, if you think about this, while everyone else was distancing themselves from the cross and their time of hurt, the other disciples, they were around, 
but they were in the background. Some of them weren't even there at all because they couldn't bear to witness this. But in the hour of greatest pain, these four drew closer to the cross. They drew closer to Jesus, knowing that he was all about restoration and he was all about healing. Worship team can go ahead and actually start coming up right now. So here's what I want you to know. When God asks us to give up something precious to us and we are obedient in the sacrifice, he redeems our pain in ways that we couldn't possibly anticipate. Because life, sometimes the devil, sometimes random events, and there is such a thing, things are taken from us. And the first thing we want to do is we want to blame God for allowing these things to be taken from us. But what you need to know is that rather than to run from the cross, run to the cross, because he is the redeemer of everything. And when we are obedient in the sacrifice and we keep our minds fixed on Jesus, he will redeem those things that were taken. See, Mary and John and Salome and the other Mary, they drew closer to the cross because they knew that was the source of redemption. They wanted to be there for that. So would you just pray with me? Father God, we know, we know that every good thing flows from you. But Lord, sometimes it's very difficult when we are hurting the most. Sometimes we just want to run. We want to run from reality. We want to isolate ourselves. But Lord, I know that that is a scheme of the enemy that wants to isolate us and say that we need to, to count on ourselves and that we need to bear our burden and bear our pain alone. But Lord, I stand against that lie of the enemy right now in the name of Jesus. And I call upon your truth, which is that we should be running to you. In the time of our deepest hurt, in the time of our loneliness and our fear and our sacrifice. Lord, let our heart be drawn to you. Let us never have any doubt of who our Redeemer is. Our Redeemer is not ourselves or anything that we can do in our own strength. Lord, it all flows from you. You gave your son Jesus for our redemption. You gave him up to death so that we could have life. So no matter what we think has been taken from us, fairly or unfairly, Lord, let us have the heart that you have for us that you have our best at heart, you have our best interest in mind, and you will not let things go unredeemed if we come to you. So Lord, I just pray for an increased presence in who you are in our lives. Right now, Lord, I know that you are speaking to people individually about things that they are angry about, things that they are fearful about and that they have run from you rather than to you. And so God, I'd like you to speak to all of us right now, just individually where we are. And Lord, tell us what we should do with those fears. Tell us what we should do with those hurts. 
that anger. Lord, how do you want us to respond? Father, I thank you that when we ask for your wisdom and we ask for your word, you give it unhesitatingly. And I thank you for the word that you have spoken to us here today. I thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the response to something like this is a couple things. We have the prayer team in back. If the Lord pinpointed something where you're struggling with fear or anger or resentment or a sense of loss and you need someone to help you pray through that further, we have the prayer team in the back and they would love to be able to pray with you. You can sit in your seat and simply let the Lord minister to you and speak to you. And when you're ready, you can take communion with us. Communion is a celebration of what Jesus did and a remembrance of what he did. And it's through what he did that we have restoration. We're not left to our own devices. So we can take communion in remembrance of that. We have a couple ways that you can do that. We have at the crosses, there's juice and crackers and bread. You can serve yourselves. Or we'll be up front here. We've got wine up front with the bread and the crackers and we would love to serve you. One more way that you could do this. Jesus asks us to draw near to the cross for those things that hurt us, those things that that we fear and in our pain. So at the cross, we have note cards. You can go to the cross and you can take one of the note cards and write on it what that fear is, what that pain is, that anger, that unforgiveness, whatever the Lord has pinpointed that you need to lay at the cross. And you can literally pin it to the cross and leave it there. Our prayer team and myself will take those and we'll pray over those later. We'll pray with you that he would take those. But that, at the foot of the cross, is where we belong. It's where our pains belong. So the worship team is going to play on. When you are ready, okay, after you have prayed and and when you are ready to move around, you can start moving around. You can take communion, return back to your seat, and just let the Lord soak in you. And the worship team will dismiss you in just a few minutes.
of your weekend. We're going to stay in worship just a little while longer, but you are free to go, and we just pray a blessing over you and your family. Hope that you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you back here next week. God bless.